0: Today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 12th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story Iowa lab now testing wastewater for flu virus. State hygienic lab also working on tests for RSV. This is an article by Aaron Jordan. The State Hygienic Lab in Coralville now can test wastewater for influenza, which gives public health officials advance warning of a spike in their community before positive flu tests show up at doctor's offices. This can serve as an indicator to remind people to get vaccinated and alert health care providers and hospitals that they will soon see more cases of influenza virus in patients, said Michael Pentella, the lab's director. Lab staff test weekly samples of wastewater from communities around the state, reporting results by geographic area. Since December 4th, the biggest jumps in influenza B have happened in South Central and Southwest Iowa, while Northwest Iowa saw a spread of influenza A in the second half of January. The hygienic lab started testing the University of Iowa campus wastewater for COVID-19 in early 2021. The idea was to detect clusters of infection without having to do swab tests, which at that stage often took hours or days to process. The lab then got help from the National Institutes of Health Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics Initiative and CERIS Nanosciences, a company that makes testing products to expand services. In October, the lab was serving 27 Iowa counties that together have about 35% of the state's population. Using the same instruments, lab staff last spring started developing a test for the flu virus in wastewater. The same sites tested for COVID-19 are tested for the flu virus, Pentella said. Since this is a quantitative assay that measures virus particles precisely and accurately, it took time to make sure that the test was performing the way that it was expected to, he said. We worked with known quantities of the virus and then adjusted the procedure to make certain that we are detecting what we know should be in the sample. The lab's results are anonymous and can't be traced to any person or household. Lab staff also have agreed to not disclose the communities providing wastewater samples. Cedar Rapids, which has been testing for COVID-19 in sewage since 2021, is one of the communities that submits weekly samples to the State Hygienic Lab, city officials confirmed Friday. State Hygienic Lab staff now are working on a wastewater test for RSV, a respiratory virus that can be dangerous to infants and older adults. Cases of RSV have been on the rise in Iowa in recent months. The percentage of lab tests coming back positive for RSV in Iowa increased from 13.8% at the end of 2023, to 14.6% by the first week of 2024. There now is a vaccine for high-risk groups. RSV has been even more difficult to pass the rigorous validation process, but we continue to work on it, Pentella said of the testing. Ceres Nanosciences announced in October the Iowa lab is one of five new wastewater-based epidemiology centers of excellence in the nation. Other new sites include the Houston Health Department, Morgan State University in Maryland, the Nebraska Public Health Laboratory, and the University of Missouri. In total, 21 states across the United States have the designation. Our next article Cedar Rapids School District hires consultant to assess staffing practices. Group will look at scheduling, equity, student achievement. This is by Grace King. Out of Cedar Rapids, the Cedar Rapids School Board last week approved a contract with a consultant who will assess staffing practices in the district in an effort to boost student achievement. The school board approved a contract with Boston-based District Management Group to perform an equitable staffing analysis and improve operational efficiency and resource allocation across its schools. Darius Ballard, the district's chief human resource officer, said the study should ensure equity in learning opportunities for all students. The rationale for this type of study is not to decrease the workforce or to save dollars, Ballard said in a school board meeting Thursday. With an equitable staffing analysis, we're looking to study what is in our staff's metaphorical backpack. Our staff continues to explain and describe that their backpacks continue to be filled with items with nothing ever being taken out. District Management Group will analyze four district high schools, Kennedy, Jefferson, Washington, and Metro, the district's six middle schools, and three elementary schools. The 2000 20000 dollars contract is being paid with federal elementary and secondary school emergency relief funds, which will expire in September. The funds were distributed to schools throughout the COVID-19 pandemic to help with costs. We believe this strategy will increase staff efficacy and elevate our students' plans, pathways, and passions, specifically graduating students with more than just a degree, Ballard said. The school board unanimously approved the contract, but spoke about the importance of involving teachers in the process. They are the ones in the classroom. It's very important we hear their voices, board member Nancy Humble said. Ballard said creating school schedules for 14,500 students and nearly 3,200 teachers and staff is often done without considering the district's overall strategy and priorities. The tools available to us have not kept pace with the increasing complexity of education. Ballard said the analysis will help the district ensure taxpayer dollars are reaching students and achieving academic goals. The agreement is... Part of the school district's strategic plan approved in September that aims to improve student outcomes and energize the staff, among other things. District Management Group was founded in 2004 to address management challenges in U.S. public schools. Its Cedar Rapids analysis will be conducted between February and June this year, and findings could be implemented by next school year. The district will have access to the District Management Group's scheduling software for one year. In consulting analysis and support to create and implement strategic and equitable schedules in school, according to the proposal from District Management Group that was in board documents. As needs change during the year, the software makes it easy to adjust schedules and provide insights to help school officials understand the effectiveness of changes. We're facing challenges in meeting the increasing academic standards and the growing needs of students, Ballard said. To address these challenges, We've been hiring more teachers and more staff members such as paraprofessionals and engagement specialists, behavior techs, special education behaviorists, and many more positions. Managing a large number of teachers and staff members to maintain programs and services to students is a daunting task for school and district leaders. At the building level, we have to schedule these teachers and staff to deliver these services, while at the district level, We must allocate resources, keeping in mind equity, tight budgets, and contractual obligations, Ballard said. The analysis promises to uncover cost-effective schedules that will make the most of student and teacher time, according to the proposal. At the elementary level, district management staff will assess how much time is spent in learning core subjects, such as reading and math, and special subjects, such as art and music interventions, and extra instruction outside typical classroom time for students who need it. Typical outcomes, the consulting group said, include daily planning time opportunities for staff, uninterrupted 90 minutes or more, each, for language arts and math classes, daily intervention and enrichment periods, equitable access to special classes such as art, music, and physical education, reduced unassigned specialist periods, Opportunities for instructional coaches to work with teachers. Maximize special education and related services support opportunities. At the middle and high school level, the analysis will seek to enhance existing tools and schedules. For example, the analysis could find the district has too many levels of algebra or too many elective classes with small enrollment. According to the proposal, the analysis will help answer the question, what classes should be offered, staffed, and scheduled? It will work to ensure students have access to high-rigor courses and study if enrollment in high-rigor classes reflects a commitment to equity and opportunity. Okay, now I'm going to turn to the Government Notes section. Marion hosting 30th State of City Address. Also, domes reopen at Taft Middle School. Excuse me. Marion Mayor Nick Abu Asali will deliver the 30th annual State of the City Address next month. In the address, Abu Asali will share the challenges and triumphs of 2023 and highlight the project's plan for 2024 and beyond in a presentation titled Setting the Standard. The event is slated for 1130 a.m. to 1 p.m. March 5th at the Radisson Hotel Cedar Rapids, 1200 Collins Road, Northeast. It is hosted by the City of Marion and supported by local businesses. Reservations for the luncheon are $50 per person or $500 for a table of 10. Reservations are due by February 26 and may be purchased online at www.cityofmarion.org/soc. The Marion Chamber of Commerce is assisting with reservations. Sponsored tables and seating will be offered on a first-come, first-served basis. Advanced payment serves as confirmation of the reservation. A limited number of free reserved seats will be available, so individuals may attend and observe the presentation only. A recording of the presentation will be available for viewing after the event. Taft Middle School Domes Reopen The second dome at Taft Middle School, closed for repairs because of deteriorating wood beams, reopened last week almost four months after the domes were closed as a safety precaution. Two domes at Taft and two domes at Harding Middle School in the Cedar Rapids Community School District were closed in October after the beams supporting the domes were found to be deteriorating. The two middle schools were constructed in 1965 using the same design that features two domes. Each dome's dome has 16 beams supporting it. Metal plates were installed on the wooden beams, welding them to metal anchors attached to concrete footings around the domes. The second dome at Harding Middle School is expected to be completed this week, weather permitting. Closure of the four domes affected more than 1,000 students in 6th through 8th grades, with students eating lunch in hallways and learning in portable classrooms until they were reopened. Public input sought on transit projects. The public is invited to provide input on the Corridor Metropolitan Planning Organization's Transportation Improvement Program for Federal Fiscal Years 2025-29. to The Transportation Improvement Program is the annual capital budget for the Corridor MPO. It is a document that identifies planned transportation projects in the Corridor MPO's boundary that are expected to use federal funds instead of local or private funds. This year's Transportation Improvement Program includes approximately $20 million in new funding for roadway, transit, excuse me, roadway, trail, and transit projects. The MPO will host a series of public engagement events during the week of February 26. At the events, the public will have an opportunity to review and ask MPO staff questions about the projects, seeking funding, and provide input on which projects they think should be prioritized. Each of the events will provide the same information and opportunities for feedback. There is no need to attend all of them. The schedule of public input sessions is Tuesday, February 27th, 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. at Ladd Library, 3750 Williams Boulevard, Southwest Cedar Rapids, Wednesday, February 28th, 2.45 to 5 p.m. at Marion Public Library, 1101 6th Avenue in Marion, Thursday, February 29th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Iowa Hall at Kirkwood Community College, 6301 Kirkwood Boulevard Southwest, Cedar Rapids, and Thursday, February 29th from 5.30 to 6.30 p.m. at Hiawatha Public Library, 150 West Wilman Street, Hiawatha. The corridor MPO also released a survey for the transportation improvement program projects. The survey opened February 8th and will close March 8th. The survey can be accessed at bit. <clears throat> let me start that again. <clears throat> These are lower, lower letters, lower caps. Bit.ly/slash three capital O capital D T-P, the number 2-D. More funding for child care program. Families who live in Johnson County and meet income and employment requirements may qualify to receive funding through the county's Infant and Toddler Scholarship Program. The Johnson County Board of Supervisors voted unanimously to increase the funding available for individual scholarships for the program, which helps families pay for a quality early education for their children while they work. Scholarships through the Johnson County Infant and Toddler Scholarship Program can be used to enroll children zero to three years at eligible programs that meet quality rating standards. Families awarded infant and toddler scholarships may use them at the eligible program of their choice. The vote increased available scholarship amounts to 80% of the program's private pay rate and program work requirements have been adjusted to 25 hours per week. Income guidelines remain at up to 250% of the federal poverty level. For more information on the Infant and Scholarship Program, visit the Johnson County Social Services website at johnsoncountyiowa.gov slash school-ready-scholarship under the Infant and Toddler Scholarships tab, or contact Lori Nash at Empower at johnsoncountyiowa.gov or 319-356-6090. Housing Fund has $250,000 available. The Housing Fund for Lynn County Board of Directors is making up to $250,000 available in loans to for-profit or non-profit developers and businesses and to governmental entities for housing initiatives, serving households earning below 80% of the area median income in Linn County. Eligible activities include development or rehabilitation of rental and owner-occupied housing, home ownership and rental aid, and financing for the preservation or development of transitional housing or homeless shelters. Applications are available at h. FFLC, <clears throat> or by request from Executive Director Tracy Achenbach at Housing Fund LC at ecicog.org or 319-289-0072. Applications are due at the East Central Iowa Council of Governments office no later than 3 p.m. February 29th. Cedar Rapids School Snow Makeup Days The last day of school for students in the Cedar Rapids Community School District is tentatively set for June 7th. The change in date for the last day of school accounts for the 41 instructional hours lost for weather-related reasons. So far, there have been five cancellations, two early releases, and one delay. Per Iowa law, schools must have 1,080 instructional contact hours with students each year. Foundation Sponsors Junior Achievement The American Energy Foundation is sponsoring junior achievement programs that will enable more than 600 students to learn work and career readiness skills. Junior Achievement's work and career readiness programs begin in elementary school, introducing students to what a job is, why people work, and how jobs benefit the local community. Middle and high school students gain knowledge and skills that enable them to explore, choose, and advance in their future career paths. Since Junior Achievement's inception in 1965, the Mid-American Energy Foundation has played a role in helping provide eastern Iowa students with economic educational programming. The Mid-American Energy Foundation is committed to supporting students across the Mid-American Territory, and the work Junior Achievement does is instrumental to that, said Catherine Kuhnert with the American Energy Foundation. Financial literacy can and does make a huge difference in young people's lives, and Junior Achievement's programming and reach makes it a strong partner for this work. The Work and Career Readiness programs will teach students about strong oral and written communication, how to define challenges and evaluate potential solutions, how to use strong people skills to create relationships, and the knowledge and resources to pursue or advance a job or career. Our next article, Cedar Rapids Police Chief Finalists Talk Priorities. Three of the four finalists met with reporters, and here's what they said. This is by Emily Anderson. The city has narrowed its search for a new Cedar Rapids Police Chief to four finalists who were each available to meet with community members at an event last week. Before the community reception, the candidates were invited to participate in 15-minute interviews Wednesday with representatives from local media organizations, including the Gazette. One of the four candidates, Tom Whitten, the chief deputy for the El Paso County Sheriff's Office in Texas, declined to talk with reporters. Reporters talked about several topics with the other three candidates, Jeff Coday, a captain in the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, David Dostal, a captain with the Cedar Rapids Police Department, and Jennifer Burkhoffer, a deputy sheriff at the Douglas County Sheriff's Office in Omaha. Here is some of what the three finalists who met with reporters said. As far as vision and priorities, Code, my top priorities would be to keep this community safe, prevention and reduction of violent crime, transparency and officer wellness. Dostal, I want to continue what we're doing. I think we're moving in a great path right now. There are some areas where I would like to improve, tweak a little bit at the department. But right now, I definitely want to continue on with what we've been doing, and I want to expand our community engagement or in community involvement with the police department. Burkoffer. I would be very remiss to say I have a vision of making sweeping changes of any kind. That really, first initial vision is maintaining that transparency and communication that it sounds to me like this department is known for. As far as school resource officers, Code, If youth can interact in a positive way with police at a younger age, I think that pays dividends in the long run. It's also important to have officers in schools immediately. That way we can share information and get ahead of any potential problems that might be developing at school. Dostal. My philosophy is schools, especially nowadays, are an area that definitely need attention for safety reasons. I think it's absolutely great that we have school resource officers in our schools. I would like to get them back into the middle schools. I firmly believe that interaction is a positive thing with students and the police department. Burkoffer, I think that a school resource officer program is very valuable in the schools because that is that bridge and communication between the law enforcement community and the youth. That is where relationships are established and where the trust is built. As far as transparency, Codey. I think transparency is the utmost importance. If we're not transparent, then that breeds distrust and maybe in some cases resentment with the community. So I think it's important, even when we make a mistake, it's important to own up to that. Dostal. Transparency with the media and the police department is absolutely a necessity. It crushes rumors. It gets information out to the public on an event that's taking place. If there's an investigation going on at the time, there are certain things that we need to hold close to our vest so we cannot release all the information. That's based on the integrity of the case at hand and also the protection of any constitutional rights of individuals involved, be it a victim, a suspect, or even an officer. Burkhoffer, it's extremely important that when you have information that you can release to the public that it's going to be a detriment to an investigation that information be shared is i'm sorry that isn't going to be a detriment to an inova- investigation that information be shared especially if it is in regards to public safety or if it is going to help in solving the crime or reducing crime as far as community relationships code a, the use of social media and traditional media i think is vital to any amount of transparency that you're going to have it's a tremendous resource for police it's a great way to for us to leverage our messaging and get our messaging out to the community and hopefully improve community re- relations. Dostel. I firmly believe that we need to increase the community involvement and community partnership. I see that as being an advantage to both the police department and the community itself to build trust. In our community service division, we have a community outreach sergeant. One of the things I would like to do is to expand that community outreach division portion and create an even more in-depth relationship with the community. Burkoffer: community policing is viewed very differently by different people. You'll have one person tell you that community policing means that your officers that are on the street are getting to know their community and working with the community. You'll have somebody else tell you that community policing means that you have very positive community services division. I believe that both of those things tie into community policing, and I have done those in my own work. Group Violence Intervention, code. I think it's important that we remain engaged with our youth, specifically working with school police, getting all of our community partners involved and getting community resources to those families in need that are facing issues, particularly those that have children that might be out committing crime. I think that it's a good opportunity, if we can be part of that, as a police agency, to get resources to those families and try to intervene and prevent future violence. When we first, this is Dostal, when we first brought on group violence intervention, it was a little hard to take on to begin with, because we haven't done that before. But as the program progressed, it's benefited. We've assisted them in doing some notifications, and I think it's definitely created a better partnership with the community, with the police department, and actually has made some positive efforts for curbing a little bit of the gun violence. Burkhofer. I have looked at some of the practices that are going on here that are most likely responsible for reducing gun violence. They have a police community action team that goes out and actively works to reduce that gun violence, and it looks like they're seeing positive results from that, and I would like to see that continue moving forward. Burkhoffer declined to answer a question about working with community groups to deal with gun violence, particularly involving youth. (coughs) Mental health. Coday, I think that it's critical that we work with all of our community partners, especially those that specialize in mental health issues or mental illness. If we can get community resources to those people that need it, I think it improves the overall quality of life within the community. It's important that we have trained professionals that know how to interact and deal with people in crisis. It's obviously a problem that you can't arrest your way out of with mental illness. So we really need to do our part to foster that link between the community resources and those that need them. Dostel, We have an outstanding mental health unit. We partner with Foundation 2 going out into the public, in the community, and assisting any of those individuals any way we can. It's been a great resource to have with our department. It has helped out, provided resources to those individuals that may be battling a mental crisis. I would like to expand it and keep it going. Berkoffer. I would want to see an ongoing relationship with the mental health liaisons and with the nonprofits that support that. There are a lot of programs out there that offer mental health training for officers, and I would like to see, if it's not already being done here, that they're receiving training so that they are, if a liaison is not available, better equipped themselves to handle the situation. Technology. Code, a, I think, technology is critical. We're never going to have enough officers to effectively police a city without the use of technology. Technology such as body-worn cameras is critical for transparency. Other technology that's out there available can help with traffic enforcement. I think if we embrace technology, that'll greatly aid our ability to keep the community safe. Dostal. When I started on the department, I basically had a walkie-talkie and my gun belt. I did not have any sort of in-car camera. I did not have a body-worn camera. I did not have a taser. So technology advances as my career progressed. I firmly think there's always room for change, always room for improvement. Dostel declined to answer a question about his experience working with technology to maximize policing, like automated traffic enforcement cameras. Burkhoffer. There's a lot of technology that is available that I am aware that not all agencies have, so we have to be willing to look beyond what is right in front of us and be willing to expand and be open-minded in thinking about how we can make improvements. Each of the four finalists also was interviewed Wednesday by five panels of city and community leaders. City Manager Jeff Pomerantz will identify two final candidates – he will then appoint a chief with the advice and consent of the mayor and city council. The new chief will succeed Wayne German, who retired last April after signing a severance agreement. German was paid more than $188,000 a year and oversaw a department of 270 full-time equivalents. Okay, I'm going to turn to the insight section, the opinion section, uh, to the community letters. Our first letter is from Anne Hart of Walk On, a terrible deal for Iowa students and taxpayers. Iowans share a history of valuing children's education. We believe every child has a right to a public education, regardless of race, religion, or zip code, and all children deserve a quality public school education. Unfortunately, Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican legislators do not share these values and instead have chosen to weaken our public schools. For years, Republicans have underfunded public schools. Then in 2023, Governor Reynolds and Republicans passed vouchers, educational savings accounts, which gives our public dollars to private schools. Vouchers draw money away from public schools in the amount of $7,635 per student, amounting to $900 million over four years. Cloaked as school choice, The facts reveal that two out of three students now receiving private school voucher money were already enrolled in private schools. Recipients are getting a taxpayer subsidy for a service they could already afford. Rural schools are hurt the most by vouchers and underfunding. Small schools struggle to stay open and provide the opportunities children deserve. In small communities, the public school is the heartbeat of the town. When a community loses its school, the town loses jobs. Imagine how children and communities could thrive if $900 million was invested in our children's future and our public schools. Private school vouchers are proving to be a terrible deal for taxpayers and children. Vouchers shortchange the vast majority of Iowa students by committing public money to private schools without any accountability and transparency taxpayers deserve. This fall, vote for public schools. Again, that was from Anne Hart of Wacon. And our last letter, Lance Lillebridge from Vinton, writes, Embrace carbon capture and storage. Iowa is recognized for having the finest soil in America, which has allowed our state to shine as a longstanding leader in U.S. corn and soybean production. To remain a leader, we must develop infrastructure that empowers our agricultural community to compete globally. Governing bodies and key markets for our commodities have already begun to tighten emission standards. If we do not adapt and dismiss technology— that would benefit Iowa's economy were jeopardizing our position as an agricultural leader. There are solutions on the horizon. From our on-farm regenerative ag practices that reduce the carbon intensity, nitrogen, and water usage, to large-scale infrastructure projects such as Wolf Carbon Solutions proposal to sequester carbon in the Mount Simon hub. We must consider solutions that benefit Iowans both ecologically and economically. The Wolf Project will bring high-paying jobs to Iowa and sustain our critical industries for generations to come while sizably reducing our carbon emissions. CO2 gas deposits have been naturally trapped and stored underground for millions of years, and carbon capture and storage is a proven, safe solution to reducing our nation's carbon emissions. If we turn our back on the opportunity to innovate and invest in sustainability for the long term, our state's enduring industries could scale back their investments in Iowa and potentially even shutter, taking their operations abroad to competitors, prepared to develop carbon capture and storage, like Brazil. I encourage my fellow Iowans to embrace proven technology we need to strengthen our rural economy and Iowa's position as an agricultural powerhouse. And again, that was from Lance Lillibridge of Vinton. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Mark Allen Cadlick. 70, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 9th at ABCM Rehabilitation Center of Independence. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday, February 15th at Murdoch-Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Cedar Rapids. Funeral service will be at 11 a.m. Friday, February 16th at the Funeral Home, with a second visitation to begin one hour prior. Burial will follow the service at Rogers Grove Cemetery in Eli Mark was born on August 31, 1953, in Cedar Rapids, the son of Charles and Dorothy Sipausik Kadlik. He graduated from Prairie High School in the special education program. Mark worked as a janitor at Mount Mercy College in Cedar Rapids through the Options program. He loved Fonzie and Hulk Hogan, but John Wayne was his hero. As a child, Mark loved to watch Popeye. His favorite movie of all time was Wizard of Oz. He enjoyed cheering on Tony Stewart and listening to Elvis. Mark was fond of hot rods and was a fan of professional wrestling. He was an Iowa Hawkeye fan to his core. He was always enthusiastic about attending Camp Courageous and enjoyed his world travels with Discovery Living. Mark was dearly loved and will be forever missed. Survivors include his siblings, Michael Cadlick and Marsha Britcher, all of Cedar Rapids, Aunts Teresa Sipausik, and Helen Barda, many nieces, nephews, cousins, and great nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, sister and brother-in-law, Mary Lou Pearson, paternal grandparents, maternal grandparents, and several aunts and uncles. Marlene K. Carter, age 90, of Brooklyn, passed away Thursday, February 8, at Brooklyn Community Estate. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, February 17th at Closter Funeral Home in Brooklyn, with the Reverend Josh Girard officiating. Burial will be in the Brooklyn Memorial Cemetery in Brooklyn. The family will receive friends from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Saturday, February 17th at Closter Funeral Home in Brooklyn. Memorials may be directed to the East Power Chic Ambulance. is survived by her daughter, Kathy Hash, daughter-in-law, Vicki Hobbs, four grandchildren, Chris Hash, Sarah Meyer, Jamie Hobbs, and Jill Hobbs, 11 great-grandchildren, Kaylee, Kylie, and Gage Holland, Brooklyn and Peyton Meyer, Brock and Alexis York, Danica Kirchner, Gabriella and Jack Hobbs, and Devin Earl, a sister Gail Holland and a niece Susan Zanata and nephew Stephen Holland. She is preceded in death by her parents, her husband Carl in 1998, a son Dwayne Hobbs, brother Eugene Wheeler, sister-in-law Darlene Wheeler, brother-in-law Larry Holland, and special friend Charles Moyer. Marlene Catherine Wheeler was born June 23, 1933, in Brooklyn, the daughter of Glenn and Gladys Heiner Wheeler. She graduated from Brooklyn High School in 1951. Marlene was united in marriage to Carl Carter December 10, 1958, in Kirksville, Missouri. The couple wintered in Arizona for several years. Faith was very important to Marlene. She enjoyed woodworking, anything outdoors, including gardening, flowers, and mowing her yard. Marlene's grandchildren said she was known for her knack at making the best pumpkin pie. She especially loved her family and taking care of them. She will be greatly missed. Ina Jean Schertz, 95, passed away peacefully in her home surrounded by a family on January 28th. She was from Cedar Rapids. Ina Jean was born on January 6, 1929, in Whiting, Indiana, a first-generation American she was one of two children born to Richard and Ina Randall Lynn, who immigrated to the United States from Lindock, Ontario, Canada. Ina Jean graduated from George Rogers Clark Senior High School in 1946 and enrolled at the University of Indiana soon after. Ina Jean met her husband Donald, Don J. Shirts through friends in Whiting, Indiana, where he was employed by the Standard Oil Company. They married on September 6, 1952, and went on to become the proud parents of five children. Don's career led them to live in eight different cities across the United States, with Ina Jean creating a loving home wherever they moved. They eventually settled down for retirement in Houston, Texas, where they spent the remaining years of their marriage before Don passed away in 1996. Ina Jean continued to call Houston home, where she created many more fond memories with her children and grandchildren for the next 23 years before moving to Cedar Rapids, Iowa at 90 years young to be closer to family. Despite moving so frequently throughout her adult life, Ina G. never shied away from making lifelong friendships thanks to her affable, quick-witted nature. She enjoyed spending time playing bridge with friends, researching her family's genealogy, reading the latest novel from her book club, masterfully completing the Daily New York Times crossword puzzle, and engaging in lively political discussions. She was a skilled needle pointer, having created countless pieces, including cherished Christmas stockings for many of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Ina Jean is credited within her family for er introducing them to many delectable regional cuisines she loved collected from the various cities she called home. Her remarkable strength, tenacity, and indomitable spirit endeared her to everyone who had the privilege of loving her. Ina Gina is survived by her five children, David Shirts, Carl Shirts, Nancy Walker, Neil J. Shirts, and Lee Ann Radigan, her twelve grandchildren, James Walker, Lindsay Miller, Ryan Shirts, Carolyn Larson, Michael Shirts, Kimberly Shirts, Neil A. Shirts, Matthew Shirts, Austin Radigan, Nicole Proussa, Donald R. Shirts, and Audra Radigan, and her nine great-grandchildren. A celebration of life will be held at Cedar Memorial Park on April 27th. Daisy Mae Beebe, 86 of Marion, passed away on Thursday, February 8th while in hospice care at Compass Memorial Healthcare in Marengo. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Tuesday, February 13th at Murdoch Funeral Home and cremation service of Marion. Celebrant Amy Hart will officiate. The family will greet friends from 10 a.m. until the service. Burial will follow at Mount Clark Cemetery in Central City, Iowa. Directly afterward, a time of fellowship and luncheon will be held at the Community Center at Eagle Ridge Park, 1285 Red Fox Way in Marion. It's across from and south of Culver's. Daisy was born on January 10, 1938, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Viral and Imogene Usher Cruz. On February 2, 1958, Daisy was united in marriage to Donald Don Dean Beebe. In Central City, she and her husband farmed for many years in rural Central City. Daisy sold Mary Kay Cosmetics for over 20 years, worked as a teacher's assistant for Central City schools, and worked in a daycare for Central City Methodist Church. Daisy enjoyed spending time with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She liked to travel and enjoyed day trips to see fall colors. Daisy will be greatly missed by all who knew and loved her. Daisy is survived and lovingly remembered by her husband of 66 years, Don Beebe. Three children, Douglas Beebe of Portland, Dina Osweiler of Williamsburg, and De- that was Portland, Oregon, excuse me, Dina Osweiler of Williamsburg, and Deborah Wood of Williamsburg. Five grandchildren, Leslie Maxwell, Carissa Dietrich, Joseph Osweiler, Madeline Novak, and Elizabeth Wood, eight great grandchildren, Cotter, Beckett, Everett, and Charlotte Dietrich, Cutler and Colson Maxwell, and, Flexer and Blaine, Fletcher and Blaine Osweiler, sister Verlene Montgomery Hawker of Marion, brother Ronald Cruz of Marion, and many nieces and nephews. She was preceded in death by her parents and nephew, Tim Montgomery. Okay, now I'm going to turn to the sports section, and I'm going to start with what is going on today. Boys, Class 1A, District basketball starts um, on television. You can catch the bull. This is in the NBA. The Bulls at the Hawks at six thirty p.m. on NBCS in Chicago. The Nuggets at the Bucks at seven p.m. on NBA TV. The Timberwolves at the Clippers at nine thirty p.m. on NBA TV. In men's basketball, we have Lehigh at Bucknell at six p.m. on CBS Sports Network. Wake Forest at Duke at 6 p.m. on ESPN, Elon at Towson at 8 p.m. on CBS Sports Network, Kansas at Texas Tech at 8 p.m. on ESPN, Prairie View A&M at Florida A&M at 8 p.m. on ESPNU. In women's basketball, we have Arizona at USC at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. In pro soccer, we have Crystal Palace versus Chelsea at 2 p.m. on USA. And men's wrestling, we have Rutgers at Penn State at 6 p.m. on BTN. And now we'll go to our headline story in men's basketball. Hawkeye score Super Sunday comeback. Iowa climbs out of a 62-42 second-half hole to defeat Minnesota at Carver Hawkeye. This is Mike, Mike Lass. Out of Iowa City, sandwiched between the Iowa women's basketball team's loss at Nebraska and the Super Bowl on Sunday was a sporting event in Carver-Hawkeye Arena. It began the day as an afterthought. It turned out to be quite a thing, really. The Iowa men's basketball club rallied from a 62-42 deficit with 16 minutes left to defeat Minnesota 90-85. The Hawkeyes scored 16 unanswered points to go from a 77-65 hole to an eighty one to seventy seven lead with four minutes and three seconds left and brought home the win. Iowa improved to six and seven in the Big Ten, fourteen and ten overall. Minnesota, which had a three game winning streak, snapped is six and six in the conference and fifteen and to eight overall. After Owen Freeman after Owen Freeman collared his career high fourteenth rebound and was fouled with seven seconds left, Iowa's Tony Perkins danced on the court. Patrick McCaffrey stomped his feet in glee, and Peyton Sanford bear hugged Hawkeye assistant coach Sherman Dillard. Iowa had fallen behind 15 to six, and 35 to 24, and 51 to 34. The arena was quiet, and the mood was indigo when the Hawkeyes trailed 62-42 with 16 seconds, 16 minutes, and 11 seconds left. Those fans were roaring in the final seven minutes as McCaffrey and Sanford led their team to big things. Both had 21 points. Both scored nine in the last eight minutes, 18 seconds. Perkins had 18 points, Freeman 17. Freeman chipped a tooth while preventing a gopher basket on the last play of the first half. He played like a hockey player today, Sanford said. He spit it out and kept playing, said Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey. That's what you do. McCaffrey yanked Freeman in the game's fourth minute and chewed him out before putting him back in shortly after. Freeman played 35 minutes. He started the game a step slow, maybe, said Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey. Then he took the game over, 17-14-4-4. That's points, rebounds, assists, and blocks. That's a pretty good line for a young guy. As for Patrick McCaffrey, who hit the 20-point mark for the first time since the second game of the season, Samford said, it was good. About as good as I've seen him. He made some big-time shots, some big-time plays. It's what a senior leader does in moments like that. Recovered from an ankle injury suffered several weeks ago, McCaffrey drove and shot with confidence. Minnesota was 11 of 15 from three-point distance at that point. The shots were open and the Gophers took advantage, but they didn't make another until hitting a meaningless one at the last second. Gopher Jr. forward Dawson Garcia tormented Iowa in the first half. He scored all 18 of his points in the game's first 14 minutes. He missed the last 15 minutes, 45 seconds of the game because of an injury. When he went out, we lost our edge, Minnesota coach Ben Johnson said. Iowa hasn't really taken off this season. Asked if it can use this win to do so, Sanford replied, we will. After the number 2 Iowa women squandered a double-digit lead and lost at Nebraska, and the Hawkeye men were down by 20, there may have been some Iowa fans who wanted to make it illegal for their teams to play on Super Bowl Sunday. Super, however, became a word that ones who left Carver-Hawkeye Arena Sunday afternoon could say with sincerity. The Hawks next game is Wednesday at Maryland, whose record is 5 and 8 in the conference, 13-11 overall. They play at 7:30 p.m. And we'll go to men's wrestling. Four Tech Falls power Cyclones to big win over Panthers. Iowa State wins six of ten bouts in state rivalry. This is by Bob Gray. Out of Ames, Casey Swinderski and several Iowa State wrestling teammates recently journeyed to the hair care aisle. They scanned the many selections and settled on the cheapest option, an unnaturally looking but bond-deepening blonde dye they all unveiled during the number 4 Cyclones 27-14 dual win Sunday, over interest rate rival and number seventeen Northern Iowa, before a crowd of five thousand six hundred fifty at Hilton Coliseum, I think it just shows how tight we are, and it's okay, whatever," said Swindurski, who's ranked number seven nationally at one hundred forty-nine pounds by Flow Wrestling. We might look ridiculous, it's okay. We're going to run you out of bounds, or we're going to take you down. So whatever. Swindurski joined three teammates in winning by technical fall Sunday against the Panthers. The Cyclones scored bonus points in five of their six wins en route to their fifth straight dual win over their Big 12 rival. Evan Frost at 133, David Carr at 165, and younger Batista at heavyweight also scored Tech Falls. We just didn't punch enough, said Panther head coach Doug Schwab, whose team got an upset win to start the meet when redshirt freshman, 125-pounder Trevor Anderson, beat number 21 Kyson Churikina, Eight to five in sudden victory. We needed to punch more. Hell, we got tech falled four times. I don't know how the hell you're gonna win a dual meet that way. Anderson's gritty win served as a bright spot for you and I, as did number 13, 157 pounder Ryder Downey's 12 to9 triumph over ISU's number nine Cody Chittam. Downey was put on his back early, but battled back and scored three back points of his own in the closing seconds to cement the comeback victory. You get put to your back in that situation, and you get down, and you know what? It's okay, Schwab said. And here's the thing. Get the next score. Win the next position, and win the next position. Make it simple. You don't need to get it back at once. The Cyclones the Cyclones 149-pounder Anthony Comendia, adopted a similar approach during the most anticipated matchup of the duel. Ekamendia ranked number nine at his weight, scored a takedown with 18 seconds remaining to outlast number six, Kyle Heppel, nine to six. The bout served as a rematch of sorts as Heppel beat Ecomendia nine to three in December at the Cliff Keen Las Vegas Invitational. Just a minute. I think this article continues. Trying to find it. Let's see. Maybe not. Here we go. All that support you get from your teammates and your coaches, it's what pushes you with 20 seconds or 10 seconds left, Ekamendia said. You have all that stuff in your head and you're like, man, I can't fail in front of these people. They're supporting me and they believe in me, so that's what I keep in mind in those close matches. Ekamendia said Swiderski is, per- in particular has been in his corner after both intended to fight for the top spot at 149 before the season. Ecomendia decided to cut weight to ensure both could be in the lineup, and it's paid dividends on a team and individual basis. I've actually never told him, but I respect the hell out of him, Swiderski said, before his hand met Ecomendia's for a heartfelt handshake, because now we're both out here, and we're the one-two punch, and I think it's only up from here. As for the ridiculous hair dye, that's not going down the drain anytime soon, Swiderski said, so expect plenty of reapplications well into March. I think it's whatever, he said. Just let him know. You don't want to get beat by the blonde guy. Okay, now let's turn to high school boys basketball. Albernette looking like a threat in a Pirates are on 14-game win streak, a top seed in their district as postseason begins. This is by Jeff Johnson out of Cedar Rapids. Put that question mark away. End the sentence with a period or an exclamation point. It's not Albertnet can make the boys' state basketball tourney in Class 2A. It's Albernette can make the boys' state basketball tournament in Class 2A. They're not afraid to say it. Their goal is to get back to the state tourna- tournament, Albertnet coach Jeff Christopherson said. They watched it when they were in middle school. That's their goal. That's the dream of every child in Albertnet." Christopherson has been around the school for multiple decades, built his program into a perennial Tri-Rivers Conference Power. It's broke through for the school's first state tournament appearance in 2019, losing to Grandview Christian in the state championship game. That was in Class 1A. Alburnet is a 2A school now and appears likely to remain there moving forward. In 2A, you are with 96 schools, I think it is, Christofferson said. In 1A, there are more schools, so you might have more disparity between the top schools and the bottom schools. For Class 2A, we're going to get a first-round bye, but our first game will be against a quality opponent. We'll play either West Liberty or Tipton, and we know both of those teams are going to be competitive. I think that's kind of the way you look at it in 2A. The Sal team enters the postseason with an 18-3 record and on a heater, winning its final 14 regular season games. That included a 52-45 win in January over North Lynn, the top-ranked team in 1A. The Pirates haven't lost since December 16th to Lansing Key, another top 10 team in 1A, in overtime. That's also a one-point loss to Maquoketa Valley on the ledger and a 14-pointer to North Lynn. Christmas was great for us, Christopherson said. We were able to just get some things figured out offensively. I thought we were good enough defensively. There were just some things offensively to clean up. Since then, things have been good. Alburnett had two returning first-team All-Tri-Rivers guards from last season in Braden Osborne and Jordan Catan, and they've been all-conference good again. Junior forward Matthew Naber has increased his scoring average from 1.8 last season to 14.1 this season and has been the Pirates' most consistent player, Christopherson said. Senior guard Peyton Baker has been the team's glue guy, averaging just 6.6 per game, but seven assists, which ranks second in 2A. He is the one getting the ball to Matthew and Jordan and Brayden, Christofferson said. Then if we're struggling a little bit, he's perfectly capable of hitting a three or getting to the rim for us. First round games in Class 1A and 2A are being played tonight throughout the state. And we'll finish up with an article here on high school wrestling hawks miller breaks through west delaware west delaware sending seven to state tournament this week benton second it's by riley cole out of manchester west delaware's jacks miller narrowly missed out on the boys state wrestling tournament in 2022 and qualified as a district runner-up in 2023 on saturday in his home gym the junior hawk found himself in uncharted territory and for good reason Facing top-seeded Jaron Gilley of Dubuque, Wallert, in the 138-pound final, Miller prevailed with a 4-2 decision and avenged his loss to Gilly in the 126 final at last year's district tournament. At last, Miller reached the top of the podium and earned a district championship. It feels good, Miller said. I've never done it before. It's nice to get it done. West Delaware head coach Jeff Voss believe, b- believes Miller's quest for a district championship got started after improving last season. He made some big steps last year to get to the state tournament, Voss said. He made some even bigger strides this year to climb the ladder a little bit further. Everything he's getting is because he's worked real hard and he's earned it. For Miller, every season has been tough, but he's fought to get better during every practice and every match. Saturday was no different. It's been a grind my entire high school career, Miller said. I just came out here and had fun, scored points and got better. That's one thing we preach at West Delaware. He's just getting better every day. Two other Hawk wrestlers who got better on Saturday were freshman Lucas Peters at 106 and Cooper Waugh at 126. Both advanced to Des Moines with district titles. Voss said the Hawks' freshman class isn't only passionate about wrestling, but also is experienced. That showed Saturday. They love wrestling, Voss said. When you have passion for a sport, you can get a lot better. That's what those kids have done all year. They persevered today and all season, but I think they are just getting started. The Hawks qualified seven wrestlers for this week's state tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines and finished in third place in the district with 188 points. West Delaware also qualified Jarrett Engel at 113, Braden Morey at 120, Blake Mather at 157, and Brent Yankovic at 175. New Hampton, Turkey Valley, took home the team title with 208 points. Benton Community came in second with 194.5. The Bobcats will take five to Des Moines, and Elijah Kupka, Brady Patterson, and Troy Kupka were champs at 132, 144, and 190, respectively. Benton Community's additional two state qualifiers are Garrett Cook, at 106, and Brendan Haying, at 165. Miller is ready to compete with his six teammates on the state's biggest stage. It's awesome, Miller said. We've had a lot of guys that have wanted to get to state. It's nice to have teammates with me down there. We all like to have fun, and that's kind of what wrestling is about. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thank you for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.